Hello, listeners, and welcome to this week's interview. This was easily one of my favorite interviews, but I'm most certainly biased. Apart from being a close family friend and the presiding rabbi at my wedding, the Honorable Fred Zeidman has had an incredibly distinguished career, and he certainly isn't slowing down. Currently the chairman of Gordian Group, a U.S. investment bank, he's been politically active from a very young age in both Texas and national politics, and in the protection and preservation of the Jewish culture and people. As it relates to today's interview, Chairman Zeidman was appointed as chairman of the United States Holocaust Memorial Council and Museum in March 2002, and served in that position from 2002 to 2010. He still serves on the council currently. He was active in too many presidential races to name, but most recently, the President George W. Bush, McCain, and Romney campaigns. He has been given numerous awards for his work with the Jewish community and Israel, and continues to be politically active today. With that being said, here's our interview with the Honorable Fred Zeidman. Please welcome the Honorable Fred Zeidman to the pod. Welcome, Fred. Thank you. I love being the honorable too. I don't get I don't get called that often. So it's 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 a nice title. It sounds good. It sounds good. A nice title. <laughs> Anyone who Thanks, chooses Fred. to come on our crazy podcast is very honorable. Just That's by right. nature. <laughs> and you say that before I tell the stories, right? So. <laughs> exactly. So let's let's dive into some quite we you know we asked two questions just to get the party started a little bit in the beginning. Same two questions, and the first one is how did you get involved in politics originally? But I got to tell you, Justin, it's a great question. And I bet if you look back at your career, there's always some serendipity. There's always something you never would have expected that catapults your career. I uh, grew up with an intense interest in politics, but I never really got involved. You know, I went to college, I went to graduate school. I moved back to Houston. I was doing things everybody else did. And then all of a sudden in 1984, I got a call. I'm from a little country town down the road from here. I got a call from a guy down there whose family had been very close to my family. He was a fair amount younger than me. And he said, uh, Fred, I'm going to run for Congress. Would you help me? And I said, sure. What the hell did I know? Right. So I said, I'll be glad to help you. And so I did. I started calling everybody I knew and who knew who he was running against or anything. But in the meantime, I also called APAC and I said, I need some help. Uh, APAC is the Israel lobby here in the country. I I said, uh, I need some help. I got this guy running as a Republican. And little did I know that the guy he was running against was the single, had two distinctions. He was the most powerful Democrat in Congress. He was the head of the Ways and Means Committee, and he was arguably one of the biggest anti-Israel votes in Congress. And I can't tell you if he was anti-Israel, if he was anti-spending and foreign aid, or if he was anti-Israel. But he had a horrible reputation for doing that. So in the meantime, the APAC network really tuned it up, sent me a half a million dollars. This is a race that usually cost about $75,000 to run. Now, as you well know, a city council race costs 10 times that now. But back in those days, that was a lot of money. So this was the Reagan revolution, and he wins. So all of a sudden, I got this guy in there. And who were the two most prolific Republican fundraisers in uh, in Washington? Senator Phil Graham, who's in Texas, and Congressman Tom DeLay, who actually was from the adjoining county to where I was from. So they started looking at each other and said, who the hell is this kid that just raised $500,000? 
and beat the most powerful member of the U.S. Congress. So they decided maybe they ought to get to know me. So they came down and took me under their wing and uh, decided to, you know, they, they really didn't have connections into the Jewish community. So they took me to Washington to start trying to introduce them to the Jewish community. Of course, that was in Republican Jewish coalition days. I did. And, I, uh, you know, I never had to pay my dues. I mean, I, I didn't have to sit in a boiler room and make calls and go hand out pamphlets. I went from being nothing to all of a sudden I'm on the national stage. And, and all of a sudden about that time, Texas starts to the Texas congressmen are now starting to have seniority and they're taking over a great number of the committees. By this time, I knew all of them. And so I was able to meet them. And again, RJC had a lot to do with this. So I brought them in to meet the RJC guys. They were, of course, all the money guys. And then, as it turns out, I had known George W. Bush since the early 70s, during the time when both of us were single. We can't remember one thing we did. And he was going to run for governor. I helped him a lot during those days. And then he decides to run for president of the United States after Jeb gets beat in Florida. You know, the whole Bush machine was built to make Jeb the president of the United States. And of course, when he lost that race in Florida, they said, wait, we, you know, we got the top horse in the race, right? But we don't have a jockey. So all of a sudden they put him in and who was the connection to him was me. It's 1996. Uh, I, I don't know again if you would, you wouldn't necessarily remember this, but I was Jack Kemp's guy. Uh, I had been since the 80s. I'm a Jack Kemp Republican all the way through. 96, he was having his swan song. He was getting ready to say goodbye to everybody. I'm through with elected politics. Uh, when all of a sudden they asked him to be the vice presidential nominee. Who's the key to Jack Kemp? Zidman, right? So <laughs> all of a sudden, now I'm up here and I'm the big shot with Kemp. George W. is starting to smell the roses at this point. So he's the convention chairman. And he said to me, would you get introduce me to all the uh, APAC guys and the RJC guys, all the Jewish guys here. So we very quickly organized a breakfast. And I mean, I got to tell you, 50 or 75, which is probably every Jewish Republican in the country at that point, shows up and, you know, he puts on a show for him and, 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 you know, just took on a life of its own. I would tell you this in confidence, but I don't have any people listening to your show. Uh, so every one of us now privy to this, but that's, it was all just serendipity went on. I mean, I'll never forget, uh, we were walking into a meeting and uh, somebody from ABC uh, sticks a microphone in front of me to ask me about Jack Kemp being vice president. And Rick Perry had spent the night with me. And so Perry jumps in front of me and says, I just spent the night with him. So here I am on national television. Like, Rick Perry spent the night with me. I said, you'll come to regret that line someday. But at any rate, it, it, you know, it's fun stuff and it all just sort of happened. Uh, and I, I don't know if you know how your dad and I met. I don't want to get ahead of us. But when I ran the campaign nationally in 2000, uh, your dad was the guy in Florida. So everything I did in Florida, I did with your father and we became the dearest of friends right there. And then he asked me, can I co-chair with you in 04? And we did.
Uh, and I'll tell you one other story because I think this is a great story. This guy is now in his mid-80s, and I've been telling this story for about 25 years, and he's finally taking credit for it. He swears he never said it to me. And I said, I don't care if you, if you really said it or not. I'm giving you credit. Take it. But Lloyd Benson, of course, was our senator down here. And he was, you know, it, 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 in the early days, you had to be a Democrat in Texas. Republicans didn't win anything. Lloyd Benson was very much of a centrist. And he was a very big supporter of Israel. So I went to this guy and he was the head of the Democratic Party in Texas. He was somebody I knew pretty well. He also did. He was everything Lloyd Benson. And I handed him a check for a thousand dollars, which was a lot of money to me at that time. Anyway, he said to me, I'm not going to take your check. And I said, what do you mean you're not going to take my check? I said, I want to support Lloyd Benson. He said, look, Fred, he said, I can raise all the money I need for Lloyd Benson. He said, I think you've got the capability someday to get in the inside, inside, inside circle of the Republican Party. If they ever see you give a check to any Democrat, they're going to think that you're single issue, which is Israel, and you'll never get in the inside circle. So here's your check back. I guess he was right. I don't really know. But, but you know, it's just all these crazy little things that happen, right? And then... You know, you build up your network, you build up your friends. I have the advantage of uh, Texans having control of almost everything in the Senate and the House, and they were all my guys. So long answer, but that's how I got involved in politics, and it just sort of built on itself. Thank you for that. Uh, we know what political party you align yourself with, so we can move past that question without a doubt. Um, well, let's and, just confirm it, though. You are a Republican. Yeah, I, I am definitely a Republican. I'm not sure what the party is today. Yeah, it's not the Republican Party that I joined. Again, I said to you before, I'm a Jack Kemp Republican. Economically, I'm about as conservative as you could get. Uh, I'm a major, major believer in incentivizing people and giving people opportunities. I'm unequivocally against the welfare state. And the kinds of things that uh, the Democratic Party had really turned to. I think I'm still a Republican. I don't know what we are anymore. I don't know what the party is. I don't know what the Democrats. We'll go with the term Republican classic. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's good. I like that. I'm going to start using that. I feel very similar. Well, interestingly, I call myself sometimes. I, you know, now I I call myself a, a, a liberal against leftism. Yeah, <laughs> that's a great line. But I, sometimes I call myself a Democratic classic because that's sort of what I feel the, the party is veered. You know, if you had grown up in Texas when I did, you would have been a Democrat. I mean, you know, that's what that's what the Democrats were before they went left. And arguably the Republicans were at the right and stayed there. What year was that around when when Texas really turned red? That's an interesting question. Uh, it, it arguably was Ronald Reagan. It was at that time, although the first Republican governor was elected, I think it was in 76. And in all honesty, I had just moved back from New York and I wasn't that involved. So I don't know how that switch came about. Uh, you know, it was after the Civil Rights Act. It was unequivocally after, right, you know, after the whole civil rights movement, if you will. It was you know, long after Lyndon Johnson said the Democratic Party has lost the South for the next hundred years, if you remember after he passed the Civil Rights Act. So it was sometime right in that period 
and Ronald Reagan gets elected president of the United States. He was the one that really switched it, and it never went back. Along those same lines, uh, you know, obviously we know that from your stories, you've been involved in that national politics on that stage for quite some time. You've been a Texan for longer. So how do Texas Republican politics differ from those on the national stage? You know, they really don't. I mean, we were not from the deep south. I don't know where all the, right, but, you know, originally the Republicans were all in the Northeast, right? I mean, that's, Texas is very conservative. It's very entrepreneurial. You can see that every day right now. The governor and the lieutenant governor can't even decide if we should open the schools or not open the schools. But there was always a conservatism here. Houston is, of course, a remarkable city. We never had race riots. We integrated with no problem. Uh, it, it really went that way. But, but, but Texans have an entrepreneurial spirit, and they believe in, in capitalism uh, all the way up and down the line. And so uh, I think that's what really converted it. If you look, I mean, if you look at some of the other solidly Republican states, there are other reasons they are solidly Republican. If you look at the ones in the South, look at South Carolina, that was all over slavery, right? So that's a little switch. But uh, Texans have always been for free trade. They've always been for uh, states' rights, right? If you look at how Texas was established, and we never wanted to be governed nationally. We've always been really independent. And that unequivocally leads you towards, uh, towards the Republican Party. And that's how it happened. And it became solidly, solidly Republican back in the 80s. There hasn't been a democratically elected state official other than, uh, what was her name? Anne, the one that was, Ann Richards, uh, who got beat by George W. in 50 years. Uh, yeah, just about 50 years. 19, again, 76, Mark White was elected governor. There has not been a Democrat elected in this state. You know, obviously congressional seats, but those are gerrymandered to create third ward. They created a, a, a district here for Barbara Jordan to get her out of the state legislature. I mean, there was one of the most brilliant women that ever walked or brilliant people that ever walked. And they got tired of her being smarter than everybody in Austin. So they created a congressional district for her in the center here. It's now represented by Sheila Jackson Lee, so uh, who I'm sure is sitting right behind you, Justin. Have you ever seen any event that she didn't make it to in the front row? But, but at any rate, she's been great for Texas, too. You know, a little different than most of us are. But that's, it, it's all based on our individualism, our not uh, wanting to be ruled. Uh, I mean, I don't know that y'all know this, but this is an interesting fact, because I've been asked this half a dozen times because of what's been going on here the last few days. The control of this, the most powerful man in Texas is not the governor. It's a lieutenant governor. He totally controls the legislature. And the way that happened is after the Civil War, the, you know, the Union sent governors down to every state. Texas didn't want to be ruled by a carpetbagger from New York, so they switched the state constitution to put all the power in the lieutenant governor, and they've never changed it. I mean, we're, you know. I didn't know we're, that. We're, That's really we're 180 years. Why do you think Dan Patrick is everywhere now? Because he really has the control. Greg Abbott's a phenomenal guy, but other than the, the ability to make appointments, 
which he really doesn't control either because they don't ever have to get a hearing. The lieutenant governor controls it all. Just a follow-up to that, there's in Democratic circles, there's a lot of talk about Texas eventually turning blue. It's been getting more and more liberal for years. The big cities, Austin especially, but even Dallas are getting younger. They're getting uh, more diverse. What do you think the chances are of Texas coming blue? We are now a minority state. Houston is a minority city. The issue is the minorities don't vote. Historically, I mean, right now we couldn't win any election. If you noticed in the, uh, obviously in 16 or in 18, there was still straight ballot vote voting. That's now out. You can't do that anymore. But every local judge, everybody got wiped out in 18 because of uh, uh, Beto O'Rourke. And they all pulled the Democratic lever. So if these folks ever come out and vote, we're lost and we're lost forever. Uh, I don't know what effect Donald Trump's going to have. I will tell you right now, he is still in the lead and his lead has shrunk under 5% in Texas, which has been a gimme historically because the African-American vote has never been more than about 15%. I think it reached that with Barack Obama. I don't think the Hispanic vote has ever... The, the largest Hispanic vote ever was for George W. Bush, ironically, but but they don't vote. So if if our minorities ever come out to vote, then we're dead in Texas. And if we're dead in Texas, we can never win back the White House. Uh, it just can't happen because where's all the votes? California is gone. New York's gone. Florida one way or the other. But with Texas's voting power, you lose Texas. If you lose Texas, you can't win. I mean, like, we saw that in 2000, right, with George W. I mean, we won here, but uh, had we lost? And the race was closer last time than it should have been. It'll be closer this time. Uh, you know, everybody knows Hillary had a lot to do with Donald Trump having been successful because too many people didn't want to vote for her. So I don't know where it's going to go this time, but it, it's up in the air. I will tell you the congressional races. Look, uh, uh, I don't think John Cornyn's got a tough race. Uh, Ted Cruz, everybody thought had a really tough race, and yet he won fairly handily. Cornyn, there's still a runoff here next week to see who the Democrat's going to be. And uh, my guess is it's going to be this MJ Hager. But she ran right around Austin. Austin's a lost cause. You know, it's a it's a. I, I, I mean, I got to tell you, they could move Austin to California and you would never notice the change in vote. Uh, it's just horrendous. And uh, that's the one big problem if we ever lose the state legislature and they they change Austin around, we could really get killed because right now we've got them all concentrated in one congressional district where they vote for Roy Doggett and that's it. If you stretch them out a little bit, where they're in John Carter's district, Mike McCall's district, we can lose those too very, very easily. Dallas, again, has shown what it is. But, you know, all of this has happened. A lot of this has happened, obviously, because uh, everyone has abandoned uh, the urban areas, although it's coming back pretty strong here, and, and moved out to the suburbs. So the suburbs is what is where all the Democrat, the Republican votes are going. And the uh, urban area uh, will continue to elect Democrats because that's all that's downtown. 
But, uh, you know, with all this urban vote coming back, I don't know where that's going to go. So we run some real risk. You know, my guess is, I mean, how many times a day does your dad get asked who's going to win the presidency? I tell everybody, ask me in October. Uh, it, it, nothing matters right now. I don't care. I don't care what it is. Nothing matters. In October, if the economy, if we're shut down again, if unemployment's flying again, if all this stimulus package has not worked, I don't care who runs against Donald Trump, he's going to be. But the fact of the matter is, if people only say one thing to themselves when they walk in that voting booth, this is interesting. They say, am I better off than I was four years ago? And if you ask them in February, Donald Trump wins in a landslide. Now, who knows where? I mean, unemployment, all right, we added 5 million jobs. We're still at 11%. 11% unemployment is not a good number for a Republican to win. Zero is a pretty damn good number. So we've still got that to face. And I think that when, when October comes around, then you can ask me who's going to be the next president. And I can probably give you a lot more educated guess than I could right now, because we just don't know anything right now. Anything. That's the best answer we've gotten. Uh, I, I love that down. answer. Uh, switching topics for a second here. Um, just Justin and I, one of the things that we agree on, me being more on the left him being more on the right is is our respect and love for israel we're both jewish americans so uh we wanted to ask you a couple questions about israel when was the first time you visited israel and how do you feel about uh israel currently in relationship to the politics of the united states first of all uh my priority my only priority forever has been the safety and security of the state of israel and the jewish people the first time i went uh, it, you're going to think I'm really nuts when you hear this answer. I never really traveled. And I realized I got out of graduate school. I went to work on Wall Street. I was about, you know, everybody, that's when everybody takes some time off and goes and climbs the Himalayas or something. Well, I wasn't about to do that. So, you know, I mean, the Hilton was about as low as I would go. But I'd, I'd been out of school. I'd worked on Wall Street for about four or five years. And I decided I wanted to move back to Houston. So I said, you know, I know me well enough that if I don't travel right now, right this minute, I will never travel because I don't enjoy traveling. So I decided I packed everything up in New York and I was just going to take six months and wander around Europe. And that's what I did. And this is the craziest story ever. My, my family, my mother and dad were ardent, ardent Zionists. But from South Texas, not from ever going to Israel. I don't believe I'm telling y'all guys a story. I was sitting on a train from back from Florence to Rome, and it was night. And I'm looking out the window, and I see the North Star, and I said, "Geez, that North Star is over Jerusalem." <laughs> and I said, "Jerusalem's about two hours from here. I'm gonna go to Israel. I'm, I'm never gonna get this close again." I get back to Rome. I pack my bag. I, I go to the airport. And I said, I want to go to Israel. I take a, and I don't know that y'all would ever even have remembered this or heard this. There's been enough killing over there. But there was a time in 1970, it was either two or three, whenever I was there, that the Japanese Red Guard guys packed submachine guns into their suitcases. And they unpacked them at Ben Gurion Airport, pulled out their automatic weapons and killed God knows how many people in the airport. Well, I was on that exact flight the day before. In the meantime, I remember sitting at the TWA counter and screaming, aren't you going to check these people? You're doing nothing. They're all, you know, 
So anyway, I get there the next day. There's this massacre at the airport. So I called home and I said, Mom, I want to tell you, I'm in Israel. <laughs> I was on that flight, but it was yesterday. And I'll never forget. My mother said, look, whatever's Bashir is Bashir. Whatever's meant to be. She said, somebody tried to assassinate George Wallace today, you know, in Alabama and killed whoever was standing behind him. That was my first trip, 1972. I was there all by myself. And I wandered around Israel for two or three weeks. And then I came home. But I never lost my fervor for it. I never lost my passion for making sure we never had another Holocaust. When George W. asked me what I wanted to do in his administration, I told him I wanted to chair the U.S. Holocaust Museum. And he said, no, 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 I'm serious. He said, you got to want to be an assistant secretary. You got to want to be a, you know, you're my guy. I'll give you anything you want to give. I mean, not a secretary position. I said, no, you don't understand. There's only one thing that's important to me. And I said, and you know this because, you know, I've run your Jewish outreach and it's the safety and security of the state of Israel and the Jewish people. And that's the only thing that I want. You know, I want that job. And he said, well, I'm giving you anything you want. If that's what you want, take it. He just wouldn't believe me. And, and he said, well, why? And I said, well, first of all, the chairman of the U.S. Holocaust Museum is the bully pulpit for the Jewish community in the United States. It was at that time. I mean, it has changed. It started changing shortly after me because my predecessor was a great chairman, but he was very much of the new left. He was Obama's guy. And I said, let me tell you something. I said, there's two, two issues. I said, number one, people still don't trust you at all. I mean, they still think you're a Bush and you're your father who was great for Israel too, by the way, but nobody ever gave him credit because of that famous, here's my phone number. And I said, you need a voice to the Jewish people and it's gonna be the chairman of this museum and I'm it. And I said, and number two, I said, I know we're never gonna need a, what was his name, Eddie Jacobs? I keep forgetting his name, Harry Truman's partner, uh, who if you remember when Truman just was not gonna recognize Israel and they finally called his, partner from the clothing store. And I said, God forbid, if we ever need Eddie Jacobson, I'm the only one that's got your cell phone number. I said, so that's the job I want. And he gave it to me. And that's what I did. And I will tell you second term, he said, okay, now you want to go make some money. I said, no, I want to continue at the museum. I said, we've made such incredible, incredible progress at that museum, having no idea what I was going to inherit when I got there. I want to do it again. I, I, I just never want to be viewed as having been an opportunist and used that as a stepping stone into being deputy secretary of the treasury. He said, look, you got it, but I don't believe you want to do this. I, I'm going to jump ahead of us again a little bit. But, you know, he still asked me about it. And I keep telling him, look, would you quit worrying about me? Uh, we bought the Washington Nationals. I did OK economically. <laughs> I did it okay economically from being in your administration. So long story short, but so I said, quit hacking me about that already, but he still does occasionally. But anyway, th that's the whole story. To this day, Israel is still the most important. And, you know, this isn't any different than, than George and I running around at the, at the pool at the Chateau de Jean apartments, you know, Bibi Netanyahu and I, we're drinking and smoking cigars before he was Bibi Netanyahu, too. You know, he was here, 
right? And we were friends and we would go out and have a drink and whatever. And, you know, it, it, you get lucky and some of these guys, some of these guys make it. So, and, and you're the one in the middle, right? I mean, what can I tell you? To this day, it's the only thing uh, I obsess about. Am I worried about it? I've never been more worried about it. And I'm most worried about it here in the United States. Israel can handle Iran. They've already handled everybody else. Uh, but what are we going to do about anti-Semitism in the United States? How are we going to turn this around, particularly when the Democratic Party is truly embracing BDS and everything else? You actually answered our next question, which was about the the, the Holocaust Museum. So thank you for that. Um, so in terms of maybe you could just elaborate a little bit more in terms of the current state of the relationship with the United States and how you feel about that. Because, you know, I ran uh, Jewish outreach, both Bush campaigns, the McCain campaign and arguably the Romney campaign, although they never quite got that. You know, Lisa asked me to run it but they never really had a Jewish campaign. So about two years in Justin, if anybody doesn't think this is a true story, Mark Zeidman was with me when we, when we did this. I got a call from Trump's office and he wanted to meet with me. And he said, when are you gonna be in either New York or Florida? So I said, well, as it turns out, I'm gonna be in Florida week after next, because I was going down to see Mark. They called me back and said, and I said, and by the way, I'm playing golf at Trump International. I was playing with Mark Goldman, not your dad, but he invited me to come play with him. And so they said, well, Mr. Trump's flying down that morning. Would you mind coming an hour early and visiting with him? I did. I flew down. I mean, I, I was there. Mark sat down with me. We sat down an hour before our tea time with him. And it was there were and he asked me if I would run the campaign. And I said, no, I really can't do it. But I said, let me explain to you why. I said there you know, a couple of reasons. First of all, it's not that your immigration policies are wrong, but it's the way you, are, you articulate it. Everybody thinks you're anti-immigration. How is the chairman emeritus of the United States Holocaust Museum conceivably going to go try and tell the Jewish community why they should vote for somebody who arguably is anti-immigration? said, I can't do it. And the other issue, and this is really a, a key point, and I wish I could remember what it was, but there was some major issue at the UN, and I don't remember what it was. And he did not speak out for Israel. And I all and I said to him, and how can I come out and openly support you when you didn't speak out for Israel? And his answer to me, and and, and by the way, it was an absolutely incredible hour with him. There, there was no bluster, there was no nothing. I just I was amazed. He wanted to know what I thought, and he never defended himself. He never told me I was full of crap, anything. So he said, well, you got to understand, he said, I'm a, I'm a businessman. And when you make a business deal, you can't tell one side they're right and one side they're wrong. You'll never make a deal. And I said, well, in all honesty, you're incorrect in this issue, because anytime you don't support Israel, any hint of neutrality, the Arabs take as being for them because they know nobody can come out against Israel. You, you got it all wrong. He said, I'm going to be the best president Israel has ever had. You just wait and see. Uh, I mean, what can I tell you? <laughs> he has been. No one has accomplished. No one, even George W., who, you know, I just worship our friendship. And as you all well know, he, he idolized Eric Sharon. 
And he gave Sharon a complete blank check to do anything Sharon felt he needed to do and never got this way at all. But the, the things that even George W. promised that he couldn't deliver on, and I'm not sure I blame him, was moving the embassy, for one thing, taking the, go, you know, taking the Golan Heights off the table. I mean, Donald Trump had the guts to do it. Uh, the timing was right uh, because of Iran. And so uh, no one else in the Middle East, they were so damn afraid of Iran that all of a sudden Israel became, I laughingly say, how can you be against Barack Obama's foreign policy? He made Saudi Arabia, he first one that ever made peace between Saudi Arabia and Israel. But I mean, they did, and they did because all because of Iran. The timing was absolutely perfect for President Trump, and he did it. I don't know that he wouldn't have done it anyway, but did you see one riot? Did you see one gun raise when either one of those things happened? Moving that embassy was mind-boggling. What fear do I have if he doesn't stay president? They can't move the embassy back. But they can certainly put the Golan Heights back in play. There's a lot of things that a Democratic administration can do. Just go look what happened the last time Joe Biden was in the, you know, his office was at the other end of the hall, but he was in the White House, right? You know, Joe Biden was always a friend of Israel's, but the years that he spent as President Obama's uh, vice president, he had no choice but to follow the dictates of, of the president. And, uh, you know, you go anywhere in Israel now, they'll tell you that Barack Obama was the single worst president Israel has ever had. And Joe Biden was his sidekick. So I don't know how that's going to work. But I don't know how, how any Jew could not support, just for the sake of Israel, uh, could not support, I don't care if you like him or not, uh, Donald Trump, because it ain't going to be the same if he doesn't get reelected. And that's a real issue. And I really think that safety and security of the state of Israel, and subsequently the Jewish people. Uh, you know, having been at the Holocaust Museum, I want to tell you the things that are going on right now in this world are absolutely no different than the things that Hitler was doing in Germany in 1929 and 1930. I mean, it's all right back here again. Nobody's paying it. A lot of people paying attention. But if you look at this entire progressive movement and you look at this entire Democratic Party, and you look at Black Lives Matter, where they're walking in the streets of Washington this past weekend, talking about killing the Jews again. And, you, you know, you look at this uh, running back, uh, what's his name, Deshaun Jackson, that's quoting Hitler and starting up in the NFL. It, 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 you, I mean, it's all happening because nobody's stopping him. Look, Adolf Hitler didn't come out and make an announcement one day. You know, he was a brilliant marketer and he did focus groups, right? He said, well, I think I'm going to go. You know, I'm going to go kill all the insane people. So he did. Nobody stopped him. Well, I'm going to kill all the people that are disabled. And uh, nobody stopped him. Well, this ain't bad. So now I'm going to go kill all the Jews. But I mean, it was all step by step. And it's happening right now, right this minute, today, this morning. I'm sure when I get back on the my emails after this, we're going to see a couple more examples of it having happened somewhere today, but it's really getting bad again, and it will get so much worse uh, if we have a switch in, in the administration, if for no other reason 
than for the state of Israel. I think Jews, you just got to do it. The only thing I, I would push back on a little is that as a, uh, again, as a Jew in America, first of all, statistically around 90% of the Jews vote Democrat in America for whatever reason. I have been extremely critical of the Democrats and the the left wing, I think, set the segment of the Democrats that do show anti-Semitic traits. But, you know, I'm not necessarily sure we could sort of characterize the entire left wing movement just because there are so many Jews involved in that movement too, right? I'm going to take issue with you. I'm not saying the Democratic Party. But all of the people who are, uh, they're a subset, if you will, of the Democratic Party. You know, I've said before, I'm not sure we have two parties in. We very well have four parties, but they've got to coalesce. And the whole BDS movement is on the left side. Terrible, terrible. The whole uh, anti-Semitism, for the most part, is on the left side. I don't want to talk about annexation because I still can't figure that out. But the blatantly, and and by the way, let let, let me just tell you, uh, I've long claimed I'm an expert on why the Jews all vote Democratic. Uh, And and it's not for the, just because I've been in the middle of it through four presidential campaigns. You know, the older, older generation, it used to be the the folks my age, right, but they're gone anyway, are still voting for Franklin Roosevelt, the man who's responsible for the damn Holocaust, you know? I used to tell everybody every morning when I ran, Rob, I'd run through the net. Now, we, we lived at the Hay Adams and we'd run through. I, I would. Your daddy didn't run. I'd run through the uh, FDR monument and I'd look every day to see where it says he was good to the Jews. But, you know, if you look back at that point, they're still voting for that. If you look at all of my age, look, look when we grew up. We were the baby boomers, right? We all grew up. In women's right, in the age of women's rights, right? The Vietnam War and all of this stuff. So the things that were most important to us, if you will, uh, particularly the women, right, were women's rights, which the Republican Party always fought against and the Democratic Party supported. What do we hear so much of? They're afraid of the judges as if they're going to reverse Roe v. Wade. You know, that's not going to happen as if they don't take it seriously. My entire generation was brought up in that women's rights, civil rights movement. I mean, who are the guys doing the marching? Us, right? So where would you expect us to be now? All of a sudden, we're not going to be socially responsible. That's the real key to it. The only ones that are solidly Republican are the Orthodox. And number one, they don't give money. And number two, they don't vote. They sit in their shtetls and talk about how everybody hates Jews. You know, Justin, I'll tell you, I'll tell you another quick story. When, when we ran in 2004, when your dad and I ran the campaign nationally, we were about a month and a half into it and we were meeting one night and I said, guys, look, we got to change the plan. I said, you take a look at what's happening to us. The only place we're resonating at all is in Orthodox synagogues. I mean, we're the conservative to some extent and the reform, not at all. Half of them wouldn't tell anybody we were coming. You know, <laughs> I would have a rally with somebody really big. They, they wouldn't come. They'd walk out. I mean, I can't tell you what we went through. But I said, we got no chance of getting to these people. What we have to do, the ones we're going to get to are the orthodox. 
we have to focus all our efforts on the Orthodox and get them to come out and vote because that's the only vote that's good that George W. is going to get. So you ask why they all vote Democratic? All on the social issues. They're scared to death that our conservatives will take over, put in conservative judges, and they'll do away with everything that's been accomplished over the last 60 years. This is just an interesting conversation, so I want to continue it a little bit, because one of the things we talked about with Ambassador Siegel was the insane underreporting of both left-wing anti-Semitism and Muslim anti-Semitism, which I, I see as the biggest existential threat to Jews all over the world. Uh, we only hear, the American media only talks about right-wing anti-Semitism, which is a problem for sure. I mean, we just talked about on the podcast last week how uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center, however, whatever, whatever you think of them, they estimate there's 197 right-wing anti-Semitic hate groups in the in the country, around 10,000 members. So, I mean, that's a serious problem. I think in America, you do have a right-wing uh, anti-Semitic problem. Globally, it is more of the left-wing. And, and the interesting thing with the left-wing anti-Semitism is that it tends to be very well-educated left-wingers. It is a problem of the most elite Ivy League educated uh, like, you know, I personally know people who went to Harvard who think Israel is the root of the entire world's problems. So it's it's a very interesting phenomenon. But there is anti-Semitism all over the place. No question. No question about that at all. And we, we, you've got to root out all of the neo-Nazism, which, you know, we have concentrated on forever. But now we're getting hit big time from the left. And, you know, you're going to you're in their generational changes that will happen. You know, you, you look at Houston and we've ha we've had a number of swastikas painted here, but the number of truly outward anti-Semitic uh, incidences have been pretty small, you know, but we've had no race riots. Houston integrated with no problem, no race riots. They integrated the schools, they integrated the lunchrooms. Uh, you know, you, again, people are more worried about you know, they might not invite you to their house for dinner, but between the hours of 8.30 and 5.30, you can walk into any office in this town and do business. There's a lot of it. Uh, most of it, I think, is arguably latent in town rather than blatant. Now, I'm sure if you get up north of town by Conroe, you can still go to a KKK rally, you know, several times a week. It's here, and it's always going to be here, and it's rearing its head again. And if we don't put a stop to it, it's going to grow. You know, the, one of the biggest problems Israel's got is since the occupation of Lebanon, there's never been truly an existential threat to the state of Israel, which means all of, and I call them the Democrats, but all of the Jewish voters think they don't have to worry about Israel. Uh, because Israel is going to take care of itself. So we're not paying attention to it. Does it bother you at all that some of those right-wing extremist groups that uh, are identify as neo-Nazis or skinheads or whatever, that most of them seem to have a serious passion for Donald Trump? That's, I mean, that's something I think that bothers a lot of left-wing Jews in America, because we know that. Well, it probably bothers me more that all these left-wing progressives have the same passion for Bernie Sanders. The answer is Donald Trump, no matter what you want to say, he rooted out people that didn't, that took the filters off their mouth. They really said what they believed. And I mean, and that's 
that's a good thing. It's better than this building up inside of them. I can't stand these Jews. The Jews own all the banks. The Jews own all the media. The Jews own all the land. The Jews are the ones that are screwing us. Okay, at least we, at least they're saying it out loud now. We know who's saying it. And and the other the other part of the issue is what you and I are doing right now. I mean, anybody that's really has hatred can go on here and find another hundred people in America that hate as much as he does. And he's got somebody now to go shooting with instead of shooting, blowing his own brains out, which is, you know, what used to happen. You know, the, the, the guy that, that assassinated uh, the security guard at the Holocaust Museum, he showed up there, and this was during Obama days, remember, but he showed up there because he, you know, he, I don't remember what everything got cut off from him, his welfare, his this, and he decided it was the Jews' fault. So he was going to come kill the Jews in the Holocaust Museum. Well, the first guy he saw was an African-American security guard. That's the one he killed. This kind of thing happens. But, you know, unfortunately, human nature is what it is. I mean, we still are so much better off than any other. You know, you name any other country. Well, there's a couple of them, maybe, that has less of this than us. But look at Great Britain. I mean, my God, this is going on right right in the in Parliament every day. You know, I mean, the, the one that's keeping it the quietest is Germany, right? And you got to figure deep down. You know, I've asked, uh, when I've been in Israel, I said, who's buying all this real estate? He said, the French, right? They're all leaving France and they're moving to Israel because all of Western Europe is trying to be nice to the Muslims and uh, and they're kowtowing to them and they're not, they're allowing them to do whatever they want to do or need to do. And we're going to have, I mean, that hatred is never going to go away, ever. I mean, it's just human nature. And somebody's, they got to be somebody's victim. So who always gets scapegoated? The Jews. I mean, how much did you see about the Jews caused the virus, right? I don't know where the hell that came from. I don't know that they had a minion in wherever it is in that laboratory. But uh, we got blamed for that, too. 9-11's a big one. 9-11. Hello. The Jews did it. And, and the proof of the Jews did it is because how come all the Jews that should have been dominating in the bottom floor, they weren't there that day. Hello, it's Rosh Hodesh, okay? But they don't know from Rosh Hodesh. But did we not get blamed for that? You know, you're, you're perfectly right. You know, there's what the problem is. We're the easiest one to blame. Who gets torched every time there's a riot in Harlem? Who gets torched, at, you know, in Chicago, right? In LA, right? Fairfax Avenue, it's all, you know, it's all the Jewish store owners, right? Why? Because we're the only ones that don't take up arms and blow them off the face of the earth. And the only other, the only last thing I'll say before we move on to the to the next topic here is that last night, uh, the football player you mentioned who posted the Nazi thing, I, Deshaun, what's his name? Deshaun Jackson. We got a Deshaun too. We got Watson. Right. <laughs> I was very surprised last night. I was watching CNN and uh, Don Lemon, who is certainly no right winger. He skewered him actually for doing it. And I was very, I thought that was actually a good thing. Listen, when anyone's willing to call out anti Semitism, I'm all for it. That's right. But no NFL players did. I mean, all the owners are Jewish, right? And they weren't going to call out their brothers. And, and, and you see, even, Ju even Julius Edelman didn't call him out. He said, Don't you think we'll, I'll take you to the Holocaust Museum? I got a meeting on that tomorrow, by the way. I immediately called 
executive director of the museum, and I said, we have an opportunity of a lifetime. You wouldn't know this, but I got, I got to mention it. Ray Allen, who if you're a basketball fan, you know, well, he, didn't he finish up at the Lakers? I don't remember if he ever played the Lakers or not. I mean, he was in Miami and, and Boston. You know, he got totally, it, somehow he ended up at, at one of the camps uh, years ago, and he got this total obsession with the Holocaust. And all the years that he was in the NBA, not all the years, the last several years that he was in the NBA, every team that he was on, he made them come to the U.S. Holocaust Museum. And uh, I mean, they're telling me the stories about LeBron James coming, you know, when he was, uh, when LeBron was in Miami. Ray was actually put on the board of the museum. He went off about a year ago now. But every NBA team, he made a deal with the NBA that he, that every team had to offer to their players a, a, a tour of the Holocaust Museum when they came to Washington to play. Uh, basketball owners, a good number of them, Jewish. You know, prices are now getting away from the Jewish sector and into the private equity sector. So I'm not sure how much uh, of that's going to continue to go on, but. You know, that being said, we got to take advantage of it. Hey, you know, the last thing I'll say on this is that um, there is a growing movement in the black community, anti-Semitic movement. That's that's really scary. I, I see it growing. You know, it absolutely is growing, uh, which is actually bizarre to me because Jews typically are very sensitive towards racism, black racism. I think that this is a problem. What I always say is that that train is never late when it comes to anti-Semitism. When there is somebody to blame, it, the Jews will always be the first one. It's the Jews. The Jews own the building and they charge too much rent. They own the stores and they got it all the money and take it back to Westchester County. So they're the ones stealing all the money from, from the blacks. They also were the only ones that will be there for the blacks. We marched with Martin Luther King Okay, we need to do that. There, there wasn't any question about what was going on back then. But they don't even know what the hell they want now. They're just going to go torture everything. And this, this has been absurd. And like I said, the Black Lives Matter movement has been unequivocally as this undertone of anti-Semitism and anti-Israel, anti-Zionist. And it ain't going to stop. What can I tell you? Unless you guys... I passed the baton on to Jay, Justin. <laughs> you and Jay and Mark, y'all, y'all are going to have to follow in our footsteps and keep this fight up. Uh, you know, has it ever been this bad? Sure, there were existential threats to Israel uh, back in our day. You know, growing up, there are not truly existential threats, but there's unequivocally threats to the uh, uh, survival of the Jewish people and the state of Israel. Because we've never had weapons of mass destruction that could do in five minutes what it took Hitler five years to do. I think you you got into a, a bit about the question as far as what really made you shift from sort of sitting on the sidelines to uh, I've heard from my father that your nickname in Republican politics right now is Johnny Come Lately. Yeah, he read the newspaper. The newspaper said there are three three Jew kinds of Jewish supporters of, of Donald Trump. I will tell you that they only mentioned two John, Johnny come latelys. One was Sheldon Adelson and one was me. So I was in pretty good company. But again, uh, I mentioned to you early on 
that when I first met with him, there were two major issues uh, that I just couldn't handle and couldn't openly support him to go out and try and solicit for him because I knew I'd get beaten on both sides of my head. One was his anti-immigration rhetoric, which he, I mean, he was always pro-immigration, just legal immigration, but the way it came out, it made him look anti-immigration. Uh, and the other is that he wouldn't openly support Israel. Well, once he started, you know, acting, if you will, the way he did, I mean, proving what he had said to me that day, that he would be the greatest president that Israel ever had. You know, am I a proponent of his approach to the presidency? No, not at all. I mean, I, I had, uh, uh, I've got incredible respect for the office of the presidency. I was told when I, by the way, when I called then Vice President Biden to tell him I, I, he had to replace me at the museum because I was coming back to become chairman of the University of Texas Health System. And I said, you know, I was shocked because I led the campaigns against President Obama, the Jewish campaign. I figured I was going to be on the second plane out of Washington. Uh, you know, George W. was on the first. And he said, you know, through both campaigns, you never badmouthed Barack Obama. You disagreed with him, but you never badmouthed him. You never called him an anti-Semite, no matter what you were thinking, you know, pro-Palestinian or whatever. And I said, it's because I had this incredible respect for the office of the presidency. I'm a Bushy. You know, I know what presidents are supposed to act like. You know, I can wholeheartedly disagree with Barack Obama. But if he gets elected president of the United States, you've got to respect the office and quit call, you know. And so that's what I did. And I remember he said to me, if you want to get out of here tomorrow, just go call a press conference and say something, you know, call him something bad. So, I mean, the, 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 the fact of the matter is uh, I, I seriously had a real issue with President Trump's approach to being president and behavioral issues. But I mean, I, everything, I don't mean to use a bad pun, everything gets trumped by what he's done for Israel because everything's a matter of priorities. And, and I got to tell you, this man wasn't in the White House. God only knows where Israel would be today. I mean, although the Clintons were never really bad for Israel. I mean, had she won, who knows what would have happened. But I, I, I will tell you that going forward, when you look at everything underneath the very top, top levels of democratic leadership, there, there is such an undercurrent of uh, anti-Semitism, anti-Israel feeling, pro-Palestinian feeling. You know, they had another bill to cut funding to Israel if they go annex property. How are you annexing property you already own? I don't know. That's your daddy's job. I don't know enough about real estate. I own this. I think I'll annex it. So am I Johnny come lately? Yeah, I am, because he proved that he was a man of his word in that instance. And it happens to be the only thing in the whole world that's really important to me, because if that doesn't, you know, if we don't hold the line there, we're all gone. The next question we have for you is, you know, what, in your opinion, does the future of the Republican Party look like if Trump loses? And the same question, if he wins. And does that differ? You know, I, I knew you were going to ask me that. It was on your list. And I've been giving a lot of serious thought to that. And I guess my best answer is I'm not sure. Look, 
We have the problem, if you remember, back when Ralph Reed and the religious right were gaining great power. And, you know, we always said, look, this is this is a moment in history and this is their moment in history. And as soon as we lose, they're going to disappear and we're going to go to a whole different kind of Republican. And that's exactly what happened. I saw Ralph not long ago, but for the most part, does anybody remember who the religious right were? I mean, you know, 19 in the 90s, that was it. Right. Then we got John McCain, who changed the whole tenor of the party, followed by Mitt Romney. So we had an entire different Republican Party than we had had. And, you know, the, the, the biggest problem is they are just like today. They are a minority of our party, but they're the noisiest. And the answer is you can't win without them. You won't win with them necessarily. But you can't win without them. If they're 15 to 20 percent of the Republican vote and they get mad and sit home, you can't win. Right. You knock out 20 percent of our vote. You know, one of the theories has always been that the Democrats understand uh, winning is better than losing. Republicans don't. And I mean, the perfect example of it's the campaign right now. I mean, all of a sudden, all the anti Joe Biden, all the uh, uh, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, all of, they're all out campaigning for Joe Biden now. So, I mean, they decided, OK, we lost. They won. Does that mean they're going to come out on Election Day? I don't know yet, but they're certainly not fighting in-house. Republicans, on the other hand, you are either 100 percent with them or 100 percent against them. Right. I mean, they're a litmus test. You look at all of our races. Our races, the, the challenges in our primary come from our right, not our left, right? You look at, I mean, a perfect example, Kevin Brady. Kevin Brady, head of ways and means, phenomenal guy. You know, he's from just north of Houston. He faced a monstrous challenge. And I don't remember what the issue was, but there was one issue that he didn't support that the far right supported, and they ran a campaign against him. And they put somebody up. Our challenges in our primaries, and I just happen to focus on Kevin, but they all come from our they come from our right. And when they don't win, they sit home and don't vote. If Trump wins again, I think you're going to see a lot of this progressive movement uh, continue on. They're either going to disappear like our religious right did, or they're going to rally around somebody. And I don't know if it's going to be the trio or you know, whatever the hell her name is. And 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 you're going to see different parties. Uh, the party that won this election is not the Republican Party. I tell this to everybody. The Republicans did not elect Donald Trump. The Democrats did. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When's the last time the Republican Party won Michigan? When's the last time they won Wisconsin? When's the last time they won? I mean, Ohio, they win every once in a while. When's the last time they won Pennsylvania? Never. The problem is, the issue is, and, and I haven't heard enough about this. So where were we? I, I think I think you had answered most of the question. I think we were just talking about oh the the, the future and what would happen oh, if, so if, I, I really, if he loses. I really don't know. Have we finally Rob reached a tipping point where there's going to be a uh, 
Republican Party and a progressive party and a Democratic Party and a conservative party. It's too expensive. So I don't know how that works. We don't have an Ariel Sharon. Ariel Sharon pulled it off in Israel because he was bigger than everybody. Right. And you had two major parties in Israel, Labor and Likud, that had been there since the founding of the state. And Mitten Derenin, for anybody that speaks Yiddish, you get a, he decides he wants his own party and starts the Kadima party and they win everything. But there's no one in America that's a superhuman like Ariel Sharon, who's the only one that can make that happen here. Do I think this has long term legs in the Republican Party? Again, I'm sorry, I was in the middle of saying it was really the Democrats. It was all of the union. I know what I was saying. I'm still convinced, and, and I don't know that anybody's ever agreed with me, that the race was decided the day that Hillary Clinton announced she was going to shut down all the coal miners and put the union workers out of work. And I think that day, all these union workers said, you know, today they came for them, I'm next. So they all obviously. When, when they got in, they, you know, their money, they got to give it to the union. The union gives it to the Democrats. But the union can't go in that booth and vote with them. And they voted for Donald Trump. And the states that have never voted Republican elected Donald Trump. So he was not a true representative of the Republican Party. He was a true representative of the voices that aren't heard in America. and. He would say what all of them want to say and don't have the guts to say. And he did it. Is this the start of a new phenomenon? I don't think so at all. If you look at our next generation of leaders and obviously, you know, Nikki uh, Haley, obviously, uh, you know, arguably Mike Pompeo would like to be. But if you look at the Ben Sasses, Cory Gardner, who might be dead, you know, unfortunately now because of uh, his race, if he loses a Senate race, I don't know where his future is. Uh, Tom Cotton, you know, if you look at some of these young guys that we have coming up, uh, most of them have had military backgrounds and they're back to the bush. Uh, uh, Dan Crenshaw, okay. I mean, we got a guy right here that, I mean, he is deadheaded on, on that, but, uh, they're, they're all, they've all got a military background, and they're going to go back to not being Donald Trump. They're going to go back to the decorum that has been president of the United States. So I don't think this thing's got legs at all, number one. Number two, again, I think a lot of these Democratic voters that voted for Donald Trump would not both you know, stick with the party in the long run. Uh, again, they were voting for the guy that told it like it was. If he wins, God only knows. You know, second terms for a president of the United States, a, a president in his second term either runs for his ideology or his legacy. Okay. So if you get some, hey, God, how do he show up? So how'd they treat you, Freddie? Has Rob been nice to you or has he gone after you? All right. As you can hear there, there's more of this interview to come. My father, who we interviewed on episode three, crashed the party and all sorts of fun storytelling ensued. We're going to release the end of this interview as a bonus sometime in the near future. Make sure you go to downthemiddlepod.com to find out more info and contact us. If you send us questions, we'll answer them on air. 
Follow us on social media at Down the Middle Podcast on Instagram, at Down the Middle PC on Twitter, and at Down the Middle Pod on Facebook. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. Visit our Discord and mix it up with us. We can talk politics. The links to all these things are in our socials. Buy our t shirts, and now we have mugs and all kinds of products in our new store. So check it out online uh, on our socials and uh, get some good stuff for you and your friends. All right, guys, that does it for this week. Join us next week for another episode and interview. 